sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh, the blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. And every soul that eateth that which was torn of itself, or that which was torn with beasts, whether it be one of your own country or of a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and shall be unclean until the even, then shall he be clean. But if he wash them not, nor bathe his flesh, then shall he bear his iniquity. Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> then verily, the first covenant had also ordinance of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went in always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people, the Holy Ghost this signifying that they, the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time, then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of, of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost 
and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I love God's word. It just seems like every time I read it or hear it read, there's something else that just comes alive. And it did again this morning as we read, and I'm very grateful. Thank you, Anthony, for the blessing and the reminder that our minds can be renewed. And they are renewed by this word right here. And every time we read it, there's something new. Every time we read it, we see the holiness of God and his holy requirement. And every time we see his holy requirement, we are reminded in passages like Leviticus that he is a good and a gracious God that wants to make us holy. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy. For I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. That would be one of my theme verses for Leviticus, and there are others, and we'll go to them this morning. I would like to go through the entire book of Leviticus and try to get the outline this morning. And we're on a bit of a time crunch, and I don't know if we can do it or not. It seems like we're a little tight, but I'm going to try because I really want to. Because I think Leviticus is beautiful. If you're like me and you're going through the Bible reading again, you've read Genesis and you've loved it, and you've read Exodus, and your heart did cartwheels, and you loved it, and you hit Leviticus, and <laughs> like there's these breaks. And, it, and I, I shared this in Zilla. I told my wife the other day, man, this is just laborious. And she said, hey, you're the one that got me excited about it. What's your deal? And so I went back, and I just looked at Leviticus again. And for me, sometimes I just need to sit down and look at the overall, I, I, I need to to structure it such that I can see the overall big context picture. And I want to try to do that this morning. I want to look at the context of, this, of Leviticus. Why Leviticus? First, we have to start with the Bible, so let's do that. The Bible, this book right here, is the book of redemption. It's a textbook on redemption. If you're going to study neuroplasticity, you're going to study a textbook on neuroscience. This is the textbook on redemption, and that's what it's all about. Not only is this a textbook on redemption, <clears throat> but it tells us a story that God chose a family, a man, rather, and, and his family, Abraham, and out of that family of Abraham sprang a nation, Israel. And out of that nation, Israel sprang a Savior, our Savior, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, we're redeemed. That's the overall picture of the Bible. You all know that. I'm not telling you anything new, but I'd like to read 1 John 5. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that... Believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. There's many other passages that we could read that are just like a, a nutshell of what the Word is telling us. That's one of them. So the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, we have redemption required. And you 
children know the story that Adam and Eve were placed in a perfect environment. They were placed in the garden, and they sinned. And God told them that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would lose their um, eternal life, I guess is what you would say, that they would die. But they did it. And so in Genesis 1 through 11, redemption is required. Remember, the Bible is a textbook on redemption. In Genesis 12, all the way through Malachi, redemption is prepared for. The entire Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Redemption is prepared for. In the Gospels, we read about how redemption is effected. Not affected, but effected, but you could probably talk about affected too. Effected. Redemption is effected in the Gospels. In the Acts of the Apostles, the ones who the Bible says, let's just turn there real quick till we get it. In Acts chapter 2, we read that these people continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. What, what was the apostles' doctrine? It was these people who had walked with Christ, who saw redemption affected through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now they are sharing it. They didn't have the New Testament yet. That was still in the works. That was still being recorded. But they were sharing together what they had witnessed in the life of Jesus Christ. And so redemption is shared in the Acts of the Apostles. They are sharing the blood of the Lamb together, if you will. In the Epistles, now we have redemption explained. And we have people like the Apostle Paul who sat at the feet of Gamaliel and knew the law inside and out. And so when the Apostle Paul or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews wrote it, they understood very well this book of Leviticus. Hebrews is in the New Testament what Leviticus is in the Old Testament. It's the book of worship. So the epistles, we have redemption explained. And finally, in Revelations, we have redemption realized more fully. We realize it this morning. I, I realize that. But we don't realize it like we will someday when we get to glory and we see him face to face. Not only do we have the entire Bible, that overview that I just tried to give you quickly, but we have the Torah, and Genesis and Exodus in the Torah, the Pentateuch, is, is fun to read. Leviticus is a bit more laborious. We're going to go there this morning. Then we have Numbers and Deuteronomy. Genesis is the book of creation. So man is created, and man is ruined, is how Harold Martin says it, and that's, that's fine. Maybe you could say he's lost. He's lost fellowship. He is without fellowship. So Genesis is the book of creation. Exodus is the book of redemption. It's really, it's just an, an outline. It's a beautiful picture of that sacrificial lamb. So when we come to the communion table, the book of Exodus comes alive for me. I, I love the book of Exodus. The book of redemption Man was created and lost, but in Exodus, man is redeemed by Jehovah. Beautiful picture of that. In Leviticus, we have the book of worship. Man is worshiping. And we just read in Romans chapter 1 that worship and server are essentially the same idea. So when you read the, the book of worship, what you see is a lot of priests doing a lot of serving. It's called worship. It is our reasonable service or worship. <clears throat> Numbers is the book of journeyings where man is preserved. And he shouldn't have been preserved. He was sinful. But our gracious and merciful high priest preserved God's chosen people through the wandering, through the journey of the wilderness. And finally, in Deuteronomy, we have the book of review where man is reminded. Why is man reminded? Because man needs to be reminded. And you're man and you need to be reminded this morning. Every single one of us need to have our minds stirred up by way of remembrance. So Exodus, Merle told us the other day, was when God got his people out of Egypt. And Leviticus is where God now needs to sanctify his people and get Egypt back out of the people. <clears throat> Egypt 
was their dwelling place for 400 years. And I think that that most likely Egypt became so much a part of them that they really needed God to lay out uh, a new plan for their lives, a sanctification plan, a cleansing plan, because all they knew was Egypt for 400 years. That's roughly how long America has been a nation, just to put that in perspective this morning. Leviticus, the Greek name is Laetikon, things concerning the Levites. The Hebrew name is, and he called. He called these men out. He called the men who were willing to stand with Moses after Aaron had given in to the people and created that lamb. And Moses said, who will stand with me? The people who stood with him were the Levites, the tribe of Levi. And so they were called then because they were willing to stand for God. Who was on the Lord's side, we sing sometimes. The Levites were on the Lord's side. So because they were on the Lord's side, God called them to serve. I'm going to skip, well... The Bible is how a sinful man can be right with a holy God. And the answer, the ultimate answer, is Jesus Christ. But until Christ, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to grace. Grace has spelled Jesus, and we're not there yet. And so God has two million people that just came out of Egypt that are supposed to represent him, and they don't look like people that represent him. They look like people that just came out of Egypt. And so God gives them the book of Leviticus. And he tells them how to serve him, how to worship, how to be holy. Why do they need to be holy? Because they need to represent him. So do we. The law and the sacrifices were Israel's access to God then. And so God had to call a certain people to administer the sacrifices, and that was the high priest. And that points forward to another high priest who also administered a more perfect and a better sacrifice. The theme verses this morning out of Leviticus, one of them would be Leviticus uh, 17.11. We just read that. I don't actually have that in my notes, but Leviticus 17.11, the life is in the blood. We read that again in in Hebrews 9. Another one would be Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Just a statement. I am Jehovah that brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, your Elohim. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 18, where you will find all the reasons why God does not want them to turn to the sexual perversions and and the the stuff that Egypt engaged in and the stuff that exists in the land of Canaan, the stuff that we need to talk more down the road because that's where we live today now. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5, Ye shall do my judgment and keep my ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man do, he shall live in them. I am Jehovah. Man can't do that. That's why we need a Savior. But let's look at the schoolmaster that brings us to grace. So who were the Levites? The Levites were the sons of Levi. They were appointed to tabernacle service because they stood with Moses. And they were not given a tribal inheritance with all the other tribes. Their inheritance was God himself. And they were simply called to serve in the tabernacle. And they were... They were paid ministry. I don't know how else to say it. They were supported by all the other tribes. All the other people went out and worked, and they simply served. The ones who offered sacrifice was Aaron and his sons, and everybody else was responsible for moving the tabernacle. Every time that cloud or that fire would move, the Levites would pack up and move out. And it wasn't just your basic L.O. Bean tent that has bendable um, fiberglass it was a major tabernacle and that whole thing had to be pulled down and it had to be done according to God's specification and some men learned that the hard way when they tried to carry the ark on a cart and they died it all had to be done according to God's order so these Levites were given 48 Levitical cities throughout the land so when they got to the 
promised land. They were given 48 cities that they dwelt in. It just gives you an idea of how many Levites there were, let alone all the rest of the people. It's an amazing thought. The tithes that the rest of them paid took care of the Levites. And at one point in time, and I I wrote this down, but I didn't give you a reference, and I'm sorry. They, they were called to remember the Levites, and the rest of the tribes were encouraged to be hospitable to the Levites, to remember these people that were called into the service of God and supported by them. In other words, when Sunday comes, you need to have the Levites over and take care of them. That's basically what he said. And maybe other days, too. Don't, don't, don't re- forget that they're actually in there killing animals and, and, and serving you throughout the week. Aaron and his sons offered the sacrifice. The rest of them did the rest of the work. <clears throat> and because of the Levites, the people were actually, because of their work, the people were actually able to approach a holy God because they did it according to what God asked them to do. It wouldn't have been possible without their work. Without the work of the priesthood, there was no access to God. That's the point. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. They prepared grain offerings in the showbread. They purified all the holy instruments at the time of morning and evening offering. Every morning, every evening, there was an offering. They prepared that. They sang praises to the Lord at the time of the morning and evening offerings. It was a beautiful time. It wasn't just boring old service. They were in there singing as they did it. And that should remind you of the joy of the Lord. They assisted the priests with burnt offerings on the Sabbath and the feast days. And finally, because of the work of the Levites, um, the, the holiness of the temple was maintained and the glory of the Lord was able to dwell among the people. The point was, we had a holy God who wanted to dwell among his people, and he could not do that if they were not holy. It was the Levite's job, it was the priest's job to enact that. Leviticus, most people believe, was written by Moses. Um, there's always a challenger in the crowd, but I still believe that. that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Hebrews 11:23 Listen to what the Bible says about Moses, the one who wrote Leviticus. I love this passage of scripture about the one who sometimes represents the law, oftentimes he is also a type of Christ himself. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid 3 months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come two years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I think that highlights what life looked like in Egypt, the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. That's Moses, the man who was supposed to be destroyed, but his parents preserved him, and then God just put him in the home of the man who tried to kill him to raise him up, to understand the way of Egypt so that he could redeem his people from Egypt. And you think God didn't write that story? The setting is at the base of Mount Sinai, and there's debate about where that's at. I tried to look it up. Uh, There's different, different thoughts. But I believe it was a great big valley. And I was just thinking the other day as I was looking out in this valley, we're kind of in a desert setting here. We've got mountains over there and, and uh, more hills over here. And we've got this big, vast valley. It was something like this. And the people just spread out their tents and their livestock in this huge valley at the base of Mount Sinai. Leviticus was written, and the time span of Leviticus is about one year. A holy God, 
present among his chosen people. The organization of the book, there's there's four ways that it can be. There's a lot of ways it can be organized. This is how Harold Martin did it, and I think he did as good as, as anybody that I read. And I went through a lot of my different handbooks and, and different books that I have. I like this one. Chapters 1 through 10 is the way of access to our holy God. So we have a holy God that wants to make a way for us to worship and have fellowship with him, and this is how we do it. Chapters 1 through 10, the way of access. Chapters 11 through 16 is the purification of God's chosen people. So these people, these impure people who have been serving God in Egypt, and I went into the Bible's Manners and Customs book for a little bit the other day. It's a big book, but if you look at how Egypt lived and served and dressed and acted, it was not a holy nation. It was a blessed nation. God, in his, in his mercy, gave them plenty. There was plenty of silver and gold, and, and much of what Egypt acquired was because of God's people working as slaves to serve the Egyptians. And then God makes sure that his people are blessed as they leave the land of Egypt. And these people are so ready to see them go that they just load them up with silver and gold and they leave. And, and, and that was rightfully theirs, according to God. So he blessed them with it. But 1 2 16 is the purification of God's chosen people because they're coming out of that, that nation of Egypt, the type of sin. And they're getting ready to go into Canaan, which was also full of sin. Chapter 17 through 22 is the way to holiness for God's chosen people. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, sad stuff that we read, a lot of stuff that you read um, together as we did as a family, and, and sometimes as a father, you just don't really want to read it. You just kind of want to skip over it. Um, chapters 23 through 27 is the way of worship for God's chosen people. The way of access, the purification, the way to holiness, and the way of worship. Leviticus. So I'd like to go through that, and we're going to start this morning with the sacrifices. I'd like to sing another hymn with you this morning, hymn number 155. As we go through Leviticus, I realize that it is, um, it's a tedious book because God is an exact God, because it all mattered to God. And ultimately, many of these people simply brought their sacrifices to God, and the priest was the one that understood how to do the work that he was called to do. You know, there's brothers here that, that understand the electrical and the plumbing code very well. And, and when they do something, they do it according to code. The priests did their work according to code. And so Leviticus is fairly tedious, but it's also beautiful because it's God's way. God wrote the law. It's beautiful. And yet it points forward to what this hymn is talking about. How condescending and how kind was God's eternal Son. Our misery reached his heavenly mind and pity brought him down. When justice by our sins provoked drew forth its dreadful sword, he gave his soul up to the stroke without a murmuring word. This was compassion of our God, for as the Savior knew, the price of pardon was his blood. His pity ne'er withdrew. Though now he reigns exalted high, his love is still as great. Well, he remembers Calvary, nor let his saints forget. Let's sing it. So the first section, chapters 1 through 7, is the access through the offerings. There was no access without the shedding of blood. And this was something that the priest offered. And there were five main sacrifices that we read about. The first was the burnt sacrifice, and this was something that was done annually. <clears throat> the entire animal was offered for the sins of the people. The entire animal was consumed. And in the same way, Jesus Christ offered himself for the sins of the people. It points forward to that final, ultimate sacrifice 
Jesus Christ offered once and for all. This happened annually, one time a year, and it did atone for their sins. It wasn't that it wasn't efficacious in the sense that it didn't give them forgiveness once a year. It's just that it wasn't as good. It wasn't better as Hebrews points forward to. Ultimately, the ultimate final sacrifice was Jesus. Then there was the meal sacrifice. That is the thank offering. That's what we um, looked at over Thanksgiving. <clears throat> and I opened that that passage up and just got really excited about the thank offering that they came. It was It was something that the people brought of their own free will. It wasn't required of them. It wasn't something they had to do. It was something that they were blessed to do. <clears throat> and in the same way, bless you this morning, we come and offer the, the sacrifice of praise. Sometimes we don't feel like it. It doesn't matter. God calls us to praise because every sacrifice, in fact, every challenge in our life is a gift from God. We've been looking at a, at a little, uh, I have been looking at a memory verse and I, I actually have it in my pocket for some strange reason. But I was just thinking about this memory verse. I want you to think about what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 12. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I believe what Paul is saying is he is willing to offer the sacrifice of praise during challenge in life. And I have to believe that Paul understood very good and well what all of these sacrifices were in the Old Testament. <clears throat> I praise God for that passage of Scripture that I believe has its roots right here with the thank offering. Then there was the fifth one, the peace offering. And, and the commentators uh, say that this was also offered annually as a thank offering for unmerited blessing and peace with God. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm taking their word for whether it was offered annually, because I, I couldn't find that specifically the other morning as I was reading in Leviticus, but that it was an annual offering. The point of it was simply this, that it was offered in thanksgiving for unmerited blessing through Christ. And, and the Hebrews had unmerited blessing. They knew that. They were blessed beyond their deserving. God tried to wipe them out. And uh, I, I trust and I hope that they were thankful for Moses' intercession on their behalf. Then there was the sin offering, the fourth one. An animal was offered for sins of weakness, error, and ignorance. These were the sin offerings or the offerings that were made to atone for the sins of the people. These were sins that were truly ultimately made against God the sin offering, sins of weakness, error, and ignorance for the atonement of their sins. And finally, there was the trespass offering where an animal was offered for sins um, that, that affected their relationship with God and also affected their relationship with other people, the trespass offering. If, if something happens and, and Doug here and I are, are at odds with each other, I need to go offer a trespass offering to make restitution um, to Doug because my <clears throat> ox gored his ox or whatever the situation was. So those were the five offerings. And because of those five offerings, the children of Israel had access to God. People offered sacrifices long before this. Noah got off the ark and he offered a sacrifice to God in thanksgiving. And all of these offerings are to be offered not just because we have to do it, but because we do it with joy because of his salvation. These people understood his salvation as well. 
they left the land of Egypt and God delivered them. <clears throat> In Hebrews 9.22, we read this morning, as we did, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And in Hebrews 10.4, we read that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could ultimately take away sins. They rolled them back. They took care of sin one time a year. But praise God this morning for that New Testament sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In chapters 8 through 10 now, we read about access through the priesthood. Because there was a high priest and because of his sons, because of Aaron's sons, the people had access to God. Because these men went daily and offered a morning and an evening sacrifice for the sins of the people. I believe that God always has, has placed that desire to worship in the heart of the people. Remember, God did that in Job's life. And he offered up for his own children a, a, a prayer that God might preserve them. That would have been long before the giving of the law. God would have called Abraham out of the same time frame, perhaps, and, and Abraham answered the call of God. And Abraham was a man who built altars. And because Abraham built altars, Isaac built altars. Because Isaac built altars, Jacob built altars. You just go through and start reading through the Old Testament and highlight the word altar, and you just see where Father showed son how to build altars. It's a beautiful picture. And so the New Testament priests we read about in Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What a beautiful picture. Because of the great high priest, the children of Israel had access. And because of our high priest, we also have access. Hebrews 13, 15, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so as you're reading through the book of Leviticus, probably many of you have already gotten through the book of Leviticus. You just came through it if you're on a Bible reading plan. But as you think about what you read in the tedium of it, thank God for an exact God and, and for someone like Moses who obeyed God and, and carried out his plan. Chapters 11 through 15 now starts a new section where we're looking at the purification of God's chosen people, where God says, I need to sanctify these people. They just came out of the land of Egypt. They just came out of a land where the people served many gods. And when God called them out of the land of Egypt, every plague that happened was a judgment against the gods of Egypt. We read about that right there in the passage where, where God is calling his people out, and God just says explicitly, we won't go there now in Exodus, but he said that each plague was a plague on the gods of Egypt. He repeats that again in Numbers, I think, 31, I believe it is, 32, where he just states explicitly that the plagues, were judgment on the gods of Egypt. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his people, and he is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Yes, he's triune in nature, but he's one God. So there were many cleansing ceremonies. We won't go into it all because we don't have time this morning. But after a woman gave birth to a, a man-child, she had to cleanse herself. And after the end of 40 days, she was clean. After she gave birth to a, a um, female child, she had to uh, be unclean for 80 days. And I don't even understand all the reasons for that. It's just what God said to do. And children, sometimes your daddy and mommy, when you ask them why, they say, just because I said so. And some of this is just the way it is. This is what God asked them to do. And I'm sure that there are reasons for it. And I am going to try to search it out because that's what I like to do. And maybe you can help me. I would love to know what you find. Um, some of these things, though, I don't think we ever find all the reasons for it. God just asked them to do it. And he asked us to be obedient. So cleansing ceremonies. And then there was, there was leprosy. And um, I don't think we have any idea 
how big of a deal leprosy was back then. But if a person was was found to be a leper, he was for the rest of his life, unless he was healed, he was he was unclean. He was supposed to cover his mustache and walk out from the people. And anytime someone came close, he was supposed to say unclean. He wasn't supposed to get close to anyone else. And back then, they didn't really have doctors. And so now, if you were worried about having a an infection, you go to the doctor. Then they went to the priest. And the priest would look at you, and if he thought maybe you had something, um, I, I enjoy reading that little patch in the skin, and if the hair turns white, you have leprosy. And the priest was supposed to know all of this. And then he would tell you to uh, to keep yourself away from people and come back in a week, kind of like the doctor used to say, take aspirin and come back in a week. And then he'd look, and if it got worse, then you were... You were uh, put off to the side. You weren't allowed to interact with the people because it was supposed to be a holy nation. And God couldn't allow a an unclean person to interact with his holy people. Then there were restricted foods. Only animals that chewed the cud and had a cloven hoof could be eaten. So there were some animals that chewed the cud. I think rabbits chewed the cud, but they didn't have a cloven hoof. And um, then there were those who had a cloven hoof but didn't chew the cud. Those weren't allowed. But if it chewed the cud and it had a cloven hoof, it could be eaten. There were also insects that they were allowed to eat, such as grasshoppers and crickets and such like. Animals that had long legs and had a, um, they're, they're of the order orthoptera, which speaks of ortho, which speaks of legs and joints. So if you see a big insect that has legs and joints, it could be eaten. Crickets and grasshoppers. Otherwise, all the other all the other insects had to be left alone, even if they looked ever so delicious. <clears throat> Chapter 16 talks about the Day of Atonement, and only one day a year the high priest went in to the most holy place of the tabernacle to offer for himself and for the people. Only one time a year. Folks, this morning we can go every day of the week and multiple times a day we can come boldly to the throne of grace but then the high priest went in one time a year and it was a big deal when the high priest got ready to go in the people were standing to attention and it was quite an ordeal and there were times when the, when Moses would go in before God that the cloud would come down into the tabernacle the people knew that the presence of God was joining with Moses in the tabernacle it was an amazing Amazing sight for the people. Only one day a year, and it always happened on the tenth day of the seventh month. In Leviticus 16, let's go there real quick. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 30 through 34. We read, For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office, in his father's stead shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments, and he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation, and this shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses one time a year the Day of Atonement. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, we read that this morning, but I just want to go there again this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, we read, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Praise the Lord. No longer did gallons and gallons of the blood of bulls and goats need to be offered. Christ offered his blood on the cross for the sins of all people. 
The next section starts in chapter 17, and we read about the way of holiness for God's chosen people, that this chosen people of God was sanctified to serve in holiness. So God's chosen people have access in the first section to a holy God. The only way that a holy God would allow an unholy people to come before him was if there was an access to the priesthood. Then we read about the purification of God's chosen people, how God sanctified the people to approach him. And now we have the way of holiness, the way to be sanctified, to serve in holiness. We already read in chapter 17, in in Leviticus chapter 17, that the life is in the blood. 17 verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. That's why communion is such a big deal. Because Paul said, as oft as you do this, you do shew the Lord's death till he comes. So when we commemorate the suffering and the death of our Savior, ultimately the thing that is most precious that night is the blood of Jesus Christ. We have no access outside of the blood. And so we read about the reverence that we read about this morning, the reverence for the blood. What's really even greater than that is a reverence for life because the life is in the blood. If a man takes the life of another man, he did not have reverence for the life of that man because he shed his blood. In chapters 18 through 22, we have God's hatred for sin. And not just his hatred for sin, but his hatred for sexual perversion. And we read things in there that you just read and you just say, wow, really? But a a person was not to be sexually active with anybody besides their wife. Nobody else's wife, nobody else's daughter besides your wife. Men were not to be sexually active with men. Women were not to be active with women. And people were not to be active with animals. And God just spells it out. He makes it very clear. Why is God doing this? because that's what the people probably witnessed in Egypt, and that's probably what they're going to move into in the land of Canaan. And that is why it is so important to God that they drive out the Canaanite before them, because God does not want his holy people that he is jealous over to do the same thing as these other people. God called those things a perversion. More on that, in the future. But folks, we live in a country, we live in a land where homosexuality is called okay. And there are have been a lot of books written that have been supposedly Christian that try to say, try to uphold this idea. I didn't realize how many books have been written where Christian people are trying to say that, well, you know, that the old law is that's over and, and now now we can we can serve and if I feel like doing it, I can do it. There is even a book written that tries to call living a homosexual lifestyle a a holy life. And I'm not going to go into all that now, but it is unbelievable. And when you read the words, you just shake your head and say, really? They missed it. They've missed the book of Leviticus. What God said in Leviticus chapter 18, he repeated later on throughout the Old Testament And not only there, he repeats it in Romans chapter 1. He makes it very clear. And he still feels that way. God is not a man that he should change his mind. When we read about God repenting, it it is a statement of God's emotion. It is not a statement of God's fickleness and God's mutability. God is immutable. God does not change. The children of Israel were called to separation from Egypt and Canaan. Not only were they called to live separate as people, they were called to honor their parents. They were called to live honest lives. They were called to to live out the Ten Commandments, which basically meant love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And not only that, but they were called to love their neighbors. <laughs> and we looked at that when we looked at this, this call to hospitality a few weeks ago, that God calls us to live hospitable lives, howbeit also holy lives. Not only were they called to live separate lives, but they were called to keep material separate. So they weren't supposed to mix wool with linen. And so if you rip your trousers, you're supposed to fix your wool trousers with wool, not linen, or vice versa, because these fabrics weren't supposed to mix. Just another pointing forward to this holy God. And there are times in the New Testament where it sounds like that the, the old law is being placed off to the side. And I want to read Colossians to you here and just look at this briefly. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a shoe of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And so this little passage appears to minimize the old law. But whatever is stated in the old law and restated in the new is clearly something God wants us to do. It's still wrong to carry out homosexual desires in the New Testament. God made it clear, and it's still wrong. I would like to unpack Colossians more, but we need to get through Leviticus. The law points, folks, ultimately, the law points to the heart of the lawgiver, and the heart of the lawgiver is a holy God, and God wants his people to be holy. Finally, in Leviticus, we have the way of worship. I know I'm going through this fast, but I'm just trying to give an overview, and I suppose if I have one goal for this morning, it's just to get you excited about Leviticus, because it is how God laid out for his people to live a holy life. It's what he wanted them to do. The way of holiness for God's chosen people. These people now sanctified through the rituals and the things that the priests, the sacrifices of the priests, and the rituals that the Levites helped carry out for the people. These people are now sanctified and ready to worship a holy God. And so the last part of Leviticus talks about that, and it talks about some of the feasts that they were to keep before God. So, so we have seven feasts, and I know that Anthony covered this recently as he was preaching, and um, I'm just going to go over them again just by way of reminder. The first feast that we read about in Leviticus was the Feast of Passover, and that one has a very clear typology, and uh, it just obviously refers to the, the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and the Passover lamb is, is Jesus Christ. So whether we are celebrating the Passover or not at the Lord's Supper, and there's a lot of debate uh, in that detail, regardless, one thing we know is that when we commemorate the, the blood of Jesus Christ around the table, that Jesus is the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb that we celebrate. It's a beautiful picture. John said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Praise the Lord. That's the feast of Passover. The next one was the feast of unleavened bread. And I'm trying to make this very brief and simple this morning. There's a lot here in Leviticus and a lot more written in the Bible. But it really just pointed forward to Jesus' perfect, sinless, holy life. That this holy God of Leviticus came to earth in the likeness of human flesh. He took on flesh. 
a body thou hast prepared for me, we read about. He took on human flesh. He was the sinless Lamb of God, the feast of unleavened bread. And how much of this the children of Israel really understood, I don't know. I think a lot of this was a mystery. This is the mystery that Paul talks about many times in the New Testament. Something that that pointed forward, but they didn't really comprehend fully. These first four feasts, we understand very well what they mean. We have the entire New Testament. We have brothers like the Apostle Paul who enlightened us and helped us see it. The last three feasts are not so clear to us yet, but they will be. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of First Fruits, and that just points forward to Jesus resurrecting. And I know I've said before, but everywhere you read about first fruits in the New Testament, especially also in the Old Testament, it just points to the resurrection. And over and over again, if you read a passage in the New Testament where you see the word first fruits, just 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 dig around and, and search it out. It's really pointing forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a beautiful picture. And finally, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit which was 50 days after Passover, the first four feasts. I know that you already know that, but praise the Lord, God had a perfect plan. There was no plan B. It was laid out from the beginning that Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That all pointed forward to his first coming. And now the other three feasts, I think, point forward to his second coming. The first one listed is the Feast of Trumpets that I think points to the translation of the church, but there are different thoughts on that as well. That's what my grandfather believed, and he always around September would remind us that the Feast of Trumpets is coming. And it was just a good reminder to keep watching and waiting for the return of the Lord. The Feast of Trumpets, when that final trump will sound, and God calls his chosen people home, the Feast of Trumpets. The second one is the Feast of Atonement. Some people think that that points to the tribulation affliction of God's chosen people. I don't know, it's mysterious to me. I dug through it again before. I, I've already preached this once in Zilla, and I, I, I have a couple thoughts, and I don't have it all figured out in my own mind. I think it's mysterious for a reason, though. I think that the same mystery that exists for us today was the mystery that existed for, for the Hebrews back in the Old Testament. Someday, we're going to know more fully, even as we are known. Now we see through a glass darkly. Someday, we're going to know what all these feasts really pointed toward. <clears throat> but but um, the, the Feast of Atonement just points to the fact that the, the blood of the Lamb is what offers atonement in our lives. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It reminds us this morning, folks, that if it is not for the blood of Jesus Christ placed upon our lives, we have no hope of salvation. There is one way. The life is in the blood. There is no other way of access to God. It's through the blood of the Lamb, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Feast of Atonement. And finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, a feast that, um, well, I'd just like to, one more thing. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Feast of Atonement. I'd like to go with you to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah helps, I think, open this up a little bit for us. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I'd like to just read that with you. And then we'll go on to the Feast of Tabernacles and also look at what what Zechariah has to say about the Feast of Tabernacles. This came alive to me yesterday. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, speaking of Israel here, and I think that this pertains to, to what we've already gone through as we looked at Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, that, that it's really pointing forward to how God will bring his chosen people in to his, his people Israel, into the flock as well, that, that he will call them to accept the blood of the Lamb as well, that they will see Jesus Christ for who he is. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. 
And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. I think Zechariah had a revelation pointing forward to that time when Israel would finally realize who Jesus Christ was. And then pointing forward to the Feast of Tabernacles, remember Israel dwelt in in little tabernacles or booths as part of their journey coming out of Egypt, and, and, and they still sacrifice or they still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles today. But it points forward, not only does I think it represent to all believers the, the fact that we dwell in tabernacles today, just little booths, but someday we'll dwell in his ultimate presence. But it's also something for Israel to celebrate as they look forward to being in God's presence. And so I want to look at this final joy for all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, when God brings it all together in his perfect plan. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, just a couple chapters over, 16 through 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, they have no rain. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein, and in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. God's people will be fully redeemed out of every nation and tongue. God will redeem those who have said yes to the blood of the Lamb. <clears throat> we have five minutes, and I do not want to miss chapters 24 through 27, talking about the sabbatical year. It's a beautiful part of Leviticus. It was observed one year out of seven, this, this Sabbath year. When God called his chosen people, when God called the Hebrew people to leave their, their land untilled and unsown for one year, they did it because it was good for the soul but I think that God also called his people to trust him. And so when they didn't sow the land, it was also good for their soul. It was good for the soil to leave it until then. It was good for their soul to trust God that he would do what he said he would do. In the same way that God said, gather enough manna on Saturday to take care of Sunday, God called his people to just leave that, that land until for an entire year. And God said he would provide. I have no reason to believe that God didn't do exactly what he said, that God provided. There are some people that feel like that over time that the children of Israel did not do this. And, and I'm not a, a, a good enough student yet of history to know if that was true, if, if that was something that they forgot. But I am certain that if it was something they forgot, that they also missed the blessing that came with it. Then every seven sabbatical years, was the year of Jubilee every 50 years. That's when all slaves, all servants were freed. That's when all properties returned to their original owner. They, they went back to the family that owned that property as it was given to them initially by Moses when all the, all the land was divided up. And that's also, again, when there was no sowing or reaping. And interestingly, as I did some of my reading, the property values were kind of on a sliding scale. And the closer they got to that 50th year, the less the property actually was worth. Again, pointing 
to God asking them to put their trust in him and not to put their trust in materialism, something that we've grossly missed in America, but something that God's word calls us to, something that I've missed. I readily confess that I have become a more materialistic person than I wish I have become. And God's word in the book of Leviticus calls me to trust God, to simply obey him and trust him. There's something else I think this points forward to as I read and as I meditated and just thought about the year of Jubilee. These people were servants. But but this whole passage speaks of stewardship, not ownership. That the people were called to steward their servants. They were called to steward their lands. But ultimately, the owner of it all was God. No one owned people or property, or things. God did. So there it is. There's the book of Leviticus. We're out of time. I went really fast. I'm sorry. There's so much more here. But it's beautiful. It is a beautiful calling from my holy God to a people that he desires to be a sanctified people, a people to worship him. Leviticus tells us how to approach God how to worship God, and it points to Jesus. In the Old Testament, we read about the blood of animals. And in Hebrews 9, 12, we read about the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, we read that the blood of animals was never enough. And so it was continually offered morning and evening. And the sins of the people were atoned once a year for. But in the New Testament, in Hebrews 9:12 as well, we read that Jesus' blood was better. It was enough. It was offered once and for all. In the Old Testament, we read that many animals were sacrificed. Folks were talking about gallons of blood offered over and over and over again. But in this songbook right here, we read about a fountain filled to atone for all the sins of the people. The blood out of one man. The human body can hold about five or six or seven liters of blood. Never mind all the blood of the bulls and goats offered year after year after year. One man, his name is Jesus, went. And the blood that he shed on the cross 2,000 years ago will atone for your sins this morning. In the Old Testament, it happened one day a year, but bless you this morning, Jesus' blood is forever. It atones forever, once and for all. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace and worship and serve our Creator whenever we desire. In the Old Testament, it was a temporary thing. It was just a type. But we sing that song that's done with, gone, over with, are the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. They no longer have a part because Jesus Christ came and offered the final sacrifice for our sins. God bless you. Leviticus was written by a holy, perfect God. It's beautiful. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And our high priest fulfilled it perfectly. God bless you.